this week. McDermott enters into super priority credit agreement. PG&E securities sell off amid new Northern California fire. Track one opioid MDL settles before it starts. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, our financial and covenant analysts will discuss McDermott International and their new financing package. It's Sunday, October 27th. After weeks of uncertainty following reports that the company had hired third-party advisors to address its balance sheet, McDermott International on Monday said that it had entered into a super-priority credit agreement with certain of its secured lenders to access up to $1.7 billion in additional financing. That's consisting of a $1.3 billion term loan facility and a $400 million letter of credit facility accessible in four tranches. According to the terms, the company would have immediate access to $650 million of financing. Describing the new financing, CEO David Dixon said the agreement, quote, provides near-term liquidity for the company to manage working capital and provide performance guarantees on expected new awards. The company forecasts that liquidity as of the end of the third quarter will be $720 million, but that liquidity at the end of the second quarter of 2020 would be negative $174 million, absent the new facility. In an 8K outlining the specifics, McDermott revealed that to access tranche B of the term loans under the super priority credit agreement, it would need to exchange 95% of its senior notes, of which there are currently $1.3 billion outstanding, by November 30th. Along with the announcement, the company also pulled its previous guidance for 2019 while confirming that it, quote, continues to pursue the previously announced strategic alternatives process for Lummis Technology and the sale process for the remaining portion of the pipe fabrication business. It also stated that it would be, quote, terminating its previously announced sale process for its industrial storage tank business. According to the filing, the first round of bids for Lummis are expected November 27th. Stay tuned for our segment later where we discuss the specifics of the transaction, along with events leading up to it, and a view on what will come next. PG&E's bonds and stock sold off in heavy volume Friday after the company said it had become aware of a transmission line outage and potentially broken transmission tower jumper in the area of the currently active Kincaid Fire. The incident, which the company said it reported to the CPUC, follows a week of planned blackouts as the company sought to prevent wildfires near its aging infrastructure. Earlier in the week, the debtors filed a motion seeking authorization to enter into exit financing arrangements providing for the issuance of $14 billion in reorganized PG&E Corp. common stock, along with syndicated bridge financing providing $34.35 billion in 364-day bridge loan facilities to be used in part to redeem its outstanding debt. Describing the commitment as a, quote, backstop, the debtors argue that the funding will, quote, provide assurances for its, quote, access to sufficient capital on the effective date of the plan. The debtors add that they anticipate effectuating the debt and equity issuances through market transactions, quote, in order to obtain the most favorable pricing and other terms. Also, Judge Dennis Montali deferred ruling on PG&E's RSA motion on Wednesday, stating he would not put the debtor's plan on the, quote, back burner in favor of the competing plan put forth by the Official Tort Claimants Committee, or TCC. 
The decision followed a motion filed earlier in the week by the TCC, along with the ad hoc note holder group, to, quote, fast-track consideration of their plan. In response, the debtors filed an objection, arguing that the competing plans, quote, should proceed on the same schedule and that the completion of estimation proceedings is required before either plan can be considered. During Wednesday's hearing, counsel to the TCC described the hope for a, quote, fast track as a, quote, practical matter to maximize certainty of outcomes. While counsel for the ad hoc note holder group called it the best way to reach the, quote, end zone, in contrast, counsel for the debtors argued that estimations are required prior to the plan consideration to ensure that the parties are not overcompensated. Counsel to the ad hoc shareholders group echoed the debtors' statements, describing the competing plan as, quote, engineered to result in overpayment, a result of its conversion of pre-petition unsecured debt into secured debt. Judge Montali ultimately set a tentative briefing schedule to consider certain discrete aspects of the TCC and ad hoc note holders' plan, with hearings to begin December 5th. The much-anticipated trial in the Track 1 opioid MTL cases did not go forward last week. The morning the trial was set to begin, on October 21st, defendants Teva, Amerisource, McKesson, and Cardinal reached a settlement agreement with plaintiff Ohio counties in the Bellwether case. Judge Dan Aaron Pulser dismissed those defendants with prejudice and moved defendant Walgreens to the next bellwether track. Quote, I think it is important that the very productive sessions we had continue and we don't lose the momentum that was created, Judge Pulser said. Quote, I did not encourage settlement in these particular cases, but of course the parties to the case are always free, pardon me, to work out a resolution, and I'm glad they did, he said. In a press release, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson announced that their settlement with the Track 1 plaintiffs would include a $215 million cash payment by the defendant, with funds, quote, to be used in support of initiatives to combat the opioid epidemic, including treatment, rehabilitation, mental health, and other important efforts. The press release added that these defendants would follow up on the settlement by seeking a, quote, global resolution. Later that day, Teva issued a separate press release revealing that, quote, there is an agreement in principle with a group of attorneys general from North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Texas, as well as certain defendants, for a global settlement framework. Teva said in the release that the global settlement framework contemplates the donation of about $23 billion of naloxone, an opioid addiction treatment, as well as a cash payment of up to $250 million to be paid over 10 years by Teva. According to a reorg analysis, the settlement as described could upend the U.S. market for naloxone, as well as potentially complicate settlement dynamics for other opioid manufacturers. As for Teva's settlement with the Track 1 plaintiffs, that includes the provision of opioid addiction treatments valued at $25 million and a cash payment of $20 million over three years, according to the release. Capping it off Wednesday, Johnson & Johnson released an 8K confirming that it had entered into an agreement in principle to settle its opioid litigation as previously outlined by a group of attorneys general. As part of the settlement, the company would contribute $4 billion in cash subject to various conditions being finalized. Quote, the agreement in principle is not an admission of liability or wrongdoing, the company stated. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Permissa Oversight Board and AFAF filed an emergency motion Thursday evening seeking to extend the stay and mediation period set forth in the Title III Court's July 24th order from November 30th to December 31st. 
The motion also seeks to extend mandatory mediation to allow parties to continue discussions facilitated by the court-appointed mediation team and proposes to push out the deadlines related to the mediation team's report, including extending the report's submission date to November 27th. In support of the request, the movements disclose that under the direction of the mediation team, numerous parties to the mediation process, quote, are continuing to work towards reaching an agreement that could resolve or make more efficient a significant number of the stayed proceedings. The motion also warns of the potential, quote, partial or whole cessation of mediation if the parties were required to comply with the schedule currently in place and that a more litigious dynamic could reemerge as a result. Prior to the filing of the motion, Judge Laura Taylor Swain entered an order lifting the stay to allow certain ERS-related matters to proceed. On Tuesday, the Puerto Rico House of Representatives unanimously approved a resolution rejecting the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment over its proposed public pension cuts and pledging that it would not approve any legislation that would make the plan, quote, feasible. The resolution, filed by House Speaker Carlos Johnny Mendez and New Progressive Party Representative Lourdes Ramos, authorizes the leaders of the House and Senate to take the necessary action and use the Legislative Assembly's resources to, quote, defend ourselves against those actions of the Oversight Board that are detrimental to the best interests of the Puerto Ricans. The legislation now heads to the Senate. Also on Tuesday, officials from the Oversight Board and the administration of Governor Wanda Vasquez testified before the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee against proposed amendments to PROMISA that they warned could undermine progress on the federal law's core mission, including debt restructuring, fiscal sustainability, and restored capital market access, and disrupt their shared focus on getting Puerto Rico out of Title III bankruptcy as quickly as possible. The fact is, PROMISA is working, testified Natalie Juresco, the Oversight Board's Executive Director, touting substantial progress by the Oversight Board and the Vasquez administration on debt restructuring and fiscal transparency. Under questioning, Juresco shed light on the mediation-related documents disclosed last week that showed the potential slashing of post-hurricane funding flow, saying the Oversight Board still stands behind the $75 billion projection for federal and private insurance funds in the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan, and that a slowdown in federal recovery funding would not, quote, derail the plan of adjustment. She said the fiscal plan disclosure was an outline of the downside risks that creditors have to keep in mind amid mediation that tends to be focused on upside. Reiterating an aim to have a private operator for PREPA's transmission and distribution system selected by the end of the year, Juresco said the draft bill's call for a revitalization coordinator at the utility could, quote, confuse bidders, confuse the process, and potentially delay, if not make it impossible. And briefly, the Wee Company, better known as WeWork, said it reached an agreement whereby SoftBank would commit to provide a financing package including approximately $5 billion in new financing, $1.5 billion in accelerated previously committed payment obligations, and an up to $3 billion tender offer for non-SoftBank shares. Earlier in the week, Reorg estimated that WeWork would need $3.6 billion of cash to convert pre-opening leased locations into revenue-generating workstations. Please reach out to your salesperson for a copy of that report. Other stories last week were Gettronics, working with Weil, Molus amid liquidity challenges, first lien term lenders organized with Kirkland and Ellis FTI, Destination Maternity to run going concern sale process, close underperforming stores by year-end, 
Creditors allege Highland Capital bankruptcy cries out for oversight at first day hearing. Judge Sanchi grants all requested relief. And as always, here's the great Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Alex, for that very kind introduction. And greetings from Houston, everybody. Swept by a glacial wind from the ship channel to the Attic Reservoir as the Houston Astros are 0-2 and two against Washington. Washington. Yes, that Washington. Not a sports fan myself unless it involves a swamp and a fishing pole. Ball bat's useful, as is a tire iron, of course, to swat at mosquitoes or alligators. And anyway, this is the week of Warren Jaw about, at least those of you whose lot in life it is to wrestle with quarterly earnings. Yes, we're getting busy starting with Monday, October 28th with Walgreens and Diamond Offshore. Interesting dynamics in the offshore market these days. And there's also the second day hearing in Forever 21 and also a wildfire claims estimation hearing in PG&E. Tuesday, October 29th, on it rolls with Diebold, Nixdorf, Intelsat, Antero Resources, a new coverage name for us, Community Health, and Mattel. Wednesday, October 30th, let's start with uh, some lawyer stuff so nobody feels left out. Confirmation hearing for a merge, omnibus hearing for Puerto Rico, and a hearing on the proposed changes to the PROMESA law. And fear not, there are earnings. Melco, AK Steel, and Hornbeck Offshore. Thursday, October 34th, October 31st, excuse me, the inimitable Todd Hornbeck will be on the earnings call at 10 a.m. to give you his assessment of the state of the offshore market, and that's always an enlightening listen. We also have Bombardier, Acorn, Avon, Avis, Incana, Valaris, that's the rig contractor once known as Insco, Gulfport Resources, another recent gas name addition, and U.S. Steel. And Friday, the 1st of November, a number of earnings calls, including Avis, U.S. Steel and Gulfport. On the legal front, there's a final dip hearing in P.S. and a couple hearings in the Zohar matters. And Lynn Tilton's Twitter feed is a good one to scroll through while you're waiting for the bailiff to call y'all to rise for the judge. That's all for me. Good luck, Astros, and back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. Now, here's McDermott. So, uh, last week, uh, the name of the week, uh, at least for the start of it, was McDermott International. They announced uh, early on uh, Monday morning uh, that they had reached a uh, new financing agreement with certain of their secured lenders. So we're going to talk about uh, that transaction now, what could potentially uh, come next, but then also start with how they got here uh, in the first place. Um, With the McDermott uh, team here at Reorg, Anton Gorbanov, uh, who is our financial analyst, and Jody Henry, our covenant analyst, to talk us through the situation. So, uh, Anton, let's let's start off um, here, and um, you know, it's let's just go to go through how they got into this uh, mess in the first place. We all knew that they were burning cash; they had been uh, for uh, for a number of quarters. We all know about their problem contracts, which um, which they've talked about. But you know, it seemed like overnight uh, there was uh, what appeared to be a liquidity crunch. So, just walk us through what possibly uh, could have happened, uh, explaining some things about this company uh, that that could have set this up. Sure. Uh, So this was a pretty classic case of uh, gradually, then suddenly. Uh, You know, if if you look at what happened uh, uh, that precipitated this uh, rescue financing, uh, it was a combination of things that amounted to what the company basically calls a $1.7 billion funding gap. Uh, and that included additional charges uh, and outflows for uh, some of their problem contracts, including Freeport and Cameron. Uh, it included uh, other project charges, which they have not disclosed yet, but uh, it seems like uh, those are not the, 
those two are not the only ones uh, where there may be a charge. Uh, it included uh, unrealized uh, expected networking capital improvement, uh, delay in project awards, and uh, resulting loss of advance payments. Uh, it looks like they need uh, letters of credit in excess of what they can actually post into their current facilities. Um, and as an aside, they got actually got a lot of awards this year, uh, and they haven't really increased their bonding capacity. Uh, they also uh, were at risk of violating their covenants at the end of the third quarter. And you know, more generally, it seems like the company's been walking a liquidity tightrope and basically did not make it to the end. Uh, more generally, uh, these businesses are very, very working capital intensive. Uh, they require bonding, and these massive fluctuations in EBITDA and in working capital are not at all uncommon. Uh, you know, generally speaking, it, it's pretty difficult to be a levered company in this industry. If you look at most of McDermott's peers, you know, they have a lot of liquidity. They're generally unlevered. Uh, a company like Floor, for example, has about $1.7 billion of debt and $1.9 billion of cash on its balance sheet. Uh, whereas you know, McDermott, prior to this, uh, had $7.7 billion of debt and four hundred of cash. And uh, for McDermott in particular, I guess one one other dynamic that's worth mentioning is uh, uh, the fact that many of the contracts in their offshore business uh, tend to run with positive working capital, and many contracts in their onshore business tend to run with negative working capital. So if they start a new onshore project, they get an advance payment. If they start a new offshore project, they have to build working capital and basically do it on their own balance sheet. So if you you know, if they if you get both and if you manage them very very well, you may be able to self fund. But uh, it's it's a pretty tricky balancing act. Now I should mention, um, you had said over seven billion in debt. That includes uh, LCs, which will uh, which will go into shortly letters of credit and why. In this case, uh, we're thinking of them as uh, as as debt or or claims. So, but before we do. Let's discuss the transaction itself. Uh, what, uh, what what happened? Uh, what did they get? Sure. So they signed a uh, financing package with a subset of their existing term lenders. The headline number is $1.7 billion, which includes $1.3 billion of funded debt in the form of a term loan and $400 million of letters of credit. Uh, the transaction is split into four tranches, uh, A through D, and only tranche A, which uh, consisted of $550 million of term loan and $100 million of LCs, has been funded. Uh, it's a uh, pretty expensive piece of paper, uh, as, as uh, is probably expected given the state of the company. Uh, you know, interest rate is L plus nine. Uh, there, uh, is, uh, there are lots of Lots of different fees uh, associated with it, including a three and a half percent initial yield fee that is payable upon funding. Uh, there's also a pretty hefty make hole, uh, although it's uh, it's uh, really only effective for about six months. And uh, tranches uh, B through D are uh, su- subject to a number of conditions. Uh, the most notable of which is uh, uh, the fact that to get to tranche B funding, they need to exchange 95% of their senior notes into new paper, which would have to be paying kind. Um, and they need tranche B to get tranches uh, C and D. Um, another big hurdle that's probably worth mentioning is that a lot of these condition uh, uh, conditions precedent are, uh, uh, and, and some of the covenants also, require them to do something that's 
you know, quote unquote, in the form and substance acceptable to supermajority lenders. So, uh, which which is defined as two thirds of both tranches, and basically that effectively gives uh, the lenders under this facility control over uh, whether or not. Uh, you know, the company can actually access that funding even if they meet other conditions. Yeah, and that's, that's what's uh, pretty interesting. I'm glad you also mentioned the tranches too because certainly the lenders here seem to have um, kept a lot of control. There's a lot of money that's being put up front, but um, there's a lot of uh, milestones along the way, which um, a couple of them actually coincide with that make call that you had mentioned as well. So we'll see, um, we'll see how that plays out and we'll go into those more in depth. But uh, first I wanted to bring Jody into the conversation because um, you know, I hear priming debt and, and debt, um, this amount of, of debt too, uh, it's priming debt. You rarely hear um, this size when you already have secure debt in place, um, having um, super senior uh, you know, secure debt uh, coming in and it's done out of court. How, how are they able to do this? Um, yeah, so uh, really, really simply, um, they amended the debt and lien covenants of the existing credit agreement, which uh, only required a majority of lenders um, under the credit agreement to do. Um, under the uh, existing credit agreement, um, it, that only required a majority, and that's, uh, that's typical um, of the uh, Geiger balance uh, and commitments across all of the tranches. So uh, we thought that um, they were going to execute the transaction um, using a uh, collateral release provision that allowed, uh, expressly allowed uh, about $250 million of uh, priming debt. Um, but instead of doing that, they uh, and using that uh, that provision, they just very simply, um, with majority consent, amended the debt and lien covenants to allow the new priming uh, priming credit agreement, uh, and that's it. Great. So, Anton, let's go back to the the business, and um, you know, you described some of the other uh, are the main parts of the business here. Very working capital um, intensive businesses, timing related to to cash flows. But then there's some other ones that might be a little bit uh, different. Uh, a couple of them that they're still looking to sell, or at least they said are, are on the block. Uh, one, the technology business. Um, the other one, the pipe business as well, that they're still um, looking uh, to to sell here. What is it about um, those businesses? Are they different? Um, any thoughts in uh, you know value here? What do we know about um, previous, perhaps previous uh, transactions? Sure. So uh, let's start with tech or the business they now refer to as Lummis. Uh, so this, this business was acquired as part of the CBNI uh, transaction in 2018, and it's a business that operates in a lot of related areas to kind of the core McDermott ENC business, but it, but it's different. Uh, what it does is it basically licenses technology for various uh, uh, industrial processes, mostly in the petrochemical space. Uh, basically, if you need to build an ethane cracker or if you need to add an alkylation unit to a refinery, you before you do the feed study, before you you know, put the shovel in the ground, you need to go buy uh, the underlying technology from somebody. And there's a fairly short list of people that actually have this technology. Uh, and the Lamas segment is one of them. So basically, you just pay them for the license and they give you some very basic drawings, which then your engineers can use to build the uh, uh, build whatever it is that you're building. Um, it's a fairly, uh, what I would call a uh, Good business, you know. It's a fairly high margin. It is not working capital intensive. Uh, it, you know, has 
EBITDA margins that are in the mid 30s range, according to to the company. Uh, and this business was actually on the block not that long ago, uh, before McDermott bought CB&I uh, uh, as as a as a whole package. CB&I was trying to sell this business, and they went as far as getting final bids. And according to the proxy that the two companies filed when they merged, uh, bids for Lamas, for uh, what is now Lamas, were uh, somewhere in the two and a quarter to two and a half billion dollar range, which is about. Uh, 10 times uh, uh, the EBITDA number that McDermott is getting to in its cleansing uh, presentation that they filed last week. Um, and uh, uh, so it seems like there there was recent strategic interest in this business. Uh, it does seem like uh, it's it can be separated fairly easily from the rest of the uh, of the company. Uh, and you know, if you look at the org chart, it, it does sit under separate subsidiaries. Um, and uh, uh, I guess I, I should also say that uh, the new super senior credit agreement actually has very explicit milestones that uh, require them to solicit bids by uh, the end of November and that require them to execute a purchase agreement by the end of January. So th this business is definitely on the block. Uh, the other uh, business is the fabrication business, which, uh, as you as you pointed out, has two parts to it. There's a tank fabrication business and a pipe fabrication business. Um, I, I would think of those two businesses as kind of a hybrid between traditional industrial manufacturing uh, slash steel center type businesses and an ANC. So it's project based, uh, but uh, it's uh, it's it. There, there's a lot less fixed price risk and. Uh, uh, a little bit more technological know-how that is uh, that is associated with it. Uh, the tank business is actually the, is actually the original CBNI business, uh, uh, and that's the one that they said they're now no longer selling. Uh, the pipe business, uh, I believe, came from the uh, show acquisition that CBNI did uh, a number of years ago. Uh, they sold a small piece of it earlier this year for uh, not a whole lot of money, uh, and it sounds like they're still uh, the, the rest of it is still on the block. Uh, it's it's a little bit unclear uh, what exactly is happening there and and what what to expect uh, going forward. Uh, but the company did say that uh, the uh, the likely proceeds for the pipe business are uh, uh, significantly lower than they were originally expecting. And I'm you know my, my guess is that they pulled the tank sale because uh, that was the case there as well. Great. Um, so you mentioned some of the dates as well uh, regarding the the sale. Other dates that we are that we are watching upcoming uh, November first is coupon payment on um, on senior notes and uh, it was sixty nine million uh, total. And uh, also November 30th is the date uh, that tranche B funding uh, would become available if uh, certain conditions are met. And one of those conditions I wanted to touch on, explore right now, is um, that they get 95% of uh, senior bonds to exchange. And it's, it's unclear from what... Uh, what they presented so far, but uh, short of crossholder, doesn't appear that bondholders were a party uh, to uh, to this deal. So 95% seems like a pretty high threshold. Um, we have no idea uh, whether or not um, people will exchange what those terms uh, will be for an exchange, but let's play out um, the scenario that they don't reach it and the company is um, is forced to restructure or wants to or choose to restructure in court. Um, let's play through that, you know, bankruptcy a little bit. Um, are they based on tranche A funding? Uh, are they okay on on cash? 
I think the short version, the, sh- the short answer is no. Uh, certainly not if they want to continue as a going concern. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the company is projecting a, a billion seven uh, funding gap. So uh, they funded 650 million of that. Uh, and uh, if the, even if they shut off uh, the interest, uh, that only saves them another you know, 100 plus. So no, they, if they want to keep going with the current business plan, they need to get additional funding. Um, they can start walking away from projects, uh, which would, you know, it can stop the cash burn, but that unfortunately has the, uh, the, 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 the rather inconvenient consequence of foreclosing on the company's ability to reorganize in its current state. You know, if, if you're, as an ANC, if you start walking away from projects, it, it would be pretty difficult to convince somebody to give you new ones uh, going forward. Uh, so I, I think it's if you know it's it's pretty. Uh, I, my guess would be that that some of if they do file uh, some of the funding that is now meant to come as tranches B through through D would come in in the form of a dip of some sort. Um, and then how about these uh, these letters of credit? Um, this is. It's particularly large uh, in this case. That's something that uh, certainly something that we need to pay attention to as potential claims. Uh, how would this potentially play out? So, uh, short answer is it's it's complicated. <laughs> uh, slightly longer answer is uh, you know they they have three types of letters of credit, uh, and and it's it's useful to think of them in, in those three buckets. So they have. Short-term uncommitted bilaterals. Uh, Quantum is about 1.1 billion outstanding today. Um, And we don't know much about those letters of credit. We don't know where they sit in terms of uh, the subsidiary. We don't know which projects they're backing. Uh, We don't know what the role schedule is on those uh, and and, whether... uh, you know, those will still be available for, for some of the work they're doing. Um, so it's it's a big number, but unfortunately, we have to leave it to the side. Uh, they have about 300 million of cash collateralized letters of credit, uh, and you know that's as, as 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 the name implies that that's that's also a fairly straightforward conversation. There there is 320 million of cash sitting in the box uh, that's that's backing those, and they have uh, 1.7 billion of what we would call syndicated letters of credit um, uh, today. And I guess they're you know they're adding another hundred to that, and maybe another 300 if they get access to uh, um, to to the additional tranches under this new facility. And the 1.7 billion of syndicated LCs that they had as of September 30th, those are uh, secured on a peri basis with the term loan and the, and the revolving credit facility. Now, normally the way it works is, you know, an LC is basically a tri-party contract. Uh, you have the client of McDermott that has uh, the EPC contract with McDermott. You have McDermott, which has the uh, LC agreement with the bank, and then the bank and the uh, client uh, uh, you know, have a relationship also where basically if certain events occur under the EPC agreement, the client can go to McDermott and uh, draw on the, sorry, go to the bank and draw on the LC, and the bank then you know, ponies up the cash and asserts a claim against McDermott. Uh, so uh, I think the the easy assumption would be that uh, to ma- the easy assumption to make would be that you know as long as McDermott keeps performing, uh, then those uh, letters of credit remain outstanding but remain undrawn and therefore do not necessarily become a claim. Um, however, if you actually look at the uh, the, le- le- the credit agreement and the separate letter of credit agreement uh, that 
that uh, 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 you know uh, has the terms for the syndicated LCs. Uh, our read of the docs is, is is that it's pretty unambiguous that whatever's outstanding becomes accel- uh, gets accelerated upon bankruptcy and becomes a claim. Now, this is uh, uh, this raises. I think fairly interesting issues uh, uh, that that have more to do with bankruptcy law, and that I, you know I think we we should put a pin in for now. Um, but uh, uh, that's you know that's that's certainly the contractual read. Uh, and you know I think more generally I should say this is a business that has to have bonding to operate. You know if you if you go and and you know you bid on projects that require you to build something. Uh, that's going to cost three billion dollars and take five years uh, to to perform. You know your counterparty will want some sort of assurance that you're going to stay on the job. So uh, you need bonding capacity. You need letters of credit, and and that's that's another reason why these businesses are fairly tough to operate in financial distress and in bankruptcy. Great. So a lot to look out for and a lot to still unpack uh, as well. So as it'd be a really interesting situation that um, you will not hear the last of it uh, from us. Anton, Jody, appreciate it. Thank you. And Connor, back to you. Thanks, Mark. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been the week in Reorg, and I'm Alex Brosman.